Well, welcome again, everybody, to Grace, and uh, welcome everybody watching online and at our live sites and the Montrose Building. Thanks for joining us as well. Uh, my name's Jeff. If I've never got to meet you before, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're here at Gent Road, I'd love to connect with you, say hi to you after service, and uh, get to know you a little bit. Um, we're excited to launch off a new series this weekend called There's Some Things You Should Never Do Alone. And what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks is how God looks at us and says, I actually created you guys to be connected to each other. If you isolate a person, if you isolate them physically or emotionally or spiritually, it's incredibly destructive to their lives. That's literally why isola uh, isolation is a punishment, right? And the prisons and things like that because it's so destructive, it's so painful to someone's life. And God would look and say, I know that. In fact, I created you to be connected to each other. If you're a Christ follower then, God would take that up another level and he would say the church, your relationship with God, your spirituality, all of it, it's a team sport. You have to do that with each other. And so we're going to look here over the next few weeks at uh, kind of what all that means and how that plays out in real time and what our responses to God should be in the middle of it. This weekend, I wanna lay down a foundation for us that we're gonna kinda of work off of for the next few weeks. And we're gonna talk about what love is, what it's not, and how that plays out to each other. And we're gonna learn that until I define that kind of correctly or God's way at a minimum, that the, the one another's, the other things that God has looking out for us is going to, uh, <clears throat> not gonna function the way that that we needed to function. So I, I often say if, if I could take control of everybody's brain and program everybody for 30 seconds, I would tell you, I would get you, I would make you believe two things about God that are critical. Number one is that he loves and supports the Ohio State Buckeye football team. Number two, a close second would be this, that God loves you and he's not out to get you. And when we talk about God, <clears throat> we talk about Christ, you cannot understand God and you cannot understand the Bible, you cannot understand Jesus if you don't view him against the foundation that he loves you and wants to do what's best for you. Most of us, when we talk about God or think about God, we start from a negative position. So we think about what God doesn't want us to do. God doesn't want me to do this. God doesn't want me to do that. God says it's wrong for me to do this. Or maybe what God does want me to do, what he, God wants me to go to church. He wants me to be nice to people. He wants me to give money, those kind of things. We, when we think about God, we tend to start to think of him from a negative position. And when we start thinking about God from a negative position, we misinterpret all that God is saying to us and wants for us. We would look and say, he's trying to control me. He's trying to rein me in. He's trying to, to make me work against my natural instincts. We would always interpret God that way. If you take all of those things, because God does say do certain things and don't do certain things. And he does say restrict our lives here and build our lives there. All of that's true. But if you take those same directives and you put them against a foundation of love, it changes the motivation, it changes your understanding, and it causes us to understand why God would do this or not do these things. So if I could somehow <clears throat> like get a hold of your brain and convince everybody of one thing, it would be that. 
that God actually loves you and wants what's best for you. He's not out to get you. He would have gotten you by now. You've given him plenty of reasons, right? But the Bible is clear in places like John 3, 17, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Jesus didn't come to reinforce all the things that's wrong with us. He doesn't need to do that. We have condemned ourselves. We all are imperfect. We all sin. We all have rebelled against God in one form or another, and we all do that consistently. Jesus didn't come to earth to kind of rub our nose in that. He came to earth to rescue us from it and to illustrate God's love for us and to help us to understand God's love for us. That's why he showed up as God and man with skin on. Because if I try to understand God and the eternal nature of God that he has always been and he will always be in the depth of his love and his justice and his humility and his, his compassion, it's too big for me to remotely get my head around as a finite being. But if I can look at Jesus... And I can see God doing that in a context that he's asking me to do it. I can see Jesus interacting with other human beings. I can see Jesus forgiving and helping and healing and talking and instructing in scenarios that are much like the, li the scenarios that my life will go through. Now I can understand God in a different way. And that allows me then to understand his love for me, right? So what Jesus would say is this, I love you. I want you to understand my love for you, and as you understand my love for you, I want you then to translate that into love for each other, and start with other Christ followers. So I want you to love one another, but then as you go through the New Testament, <clears throat> that, that directive expands even beyond Christ followers. It would expand into our neighbors, it would expand even into our enemies, and so God would say, I want my people to do that. In fact, I want you to be known for that. This is what Jesus says in John 13. He says, a new command I give to you, the you is Christ's followers. So this new command I give to you, my followers, my people, I want you to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus would look and say, I want the hallmark of my people not to be what they're for, not to be what they're against, not to be their politics, not to be their cultural positions. I want, I want people to discover that you are my followers because you love each other the way that I love you. See? And when you love each other in the way that I love you, that will kind of expose to the world, so to say, that you are my followers. So when you start looking at this and say, okay, I'm gonna love, but I need to love as I have been loved by Christ, you start looking and saying, well, then how did Christ love me, right? So it's not just some the ethereal idea out there. Well, how did Jesus express his love for me? Well, you go back and we start looking at Jesus's life and we'd say, well, for instance, he loved me before I asked him to love me. Nobody was on earth clamoring for Jesus to come down. The Bible says we're enemies of God in our heart. The, the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when Jesus loved me, he loved me proactively. He loved me purposely even before I asked him to do that. That would be a way that I have been loved. Jesus loved me by meeting my needs. That's the whole point of him being on the planet. He, he met people's needs. He healed every disease, every sickness. He saw their point of need and he interacted with it. Well, now I understand that Christ does that for me. He loves me that way.
He loved me sacrificially. He went all in. The Bible says that his passion, the beating and the persecution he underwent before the crucifixion, that his passion is the full extent of his love. He showed us all, the highest degree that he could love us. So when I look and say, well, Christ loved me, he went all in. He loved me that sacrificially. He offered his life for me. Jesus wasn't murdered. He, he laid his life down. So he gave the ultimate offer. He loved for my benefit, for not his own. He didn't really get anything out of it. And we could go on and on and on. But I'm going to look and say, I, I want to love, I want you to love each other as I have loved you. So I'm going to start asking the question, well, how has he loved me then? And Jesus says, I want you to take that. I want you to love each other, starting with my followers and then pushing out to the world around us. And that's a command. It's not just an example. It's not just a, an ideal, it, it's a, no, I, this is what you are to do, and then people will know that you're my followers. Now, this is where this gets difficult, right? Because all that sounds good, and then we actually have to do it. And sometimes loving people is very easy. I, you know, my friend is my friend, and, and we get along so well, and we like all the same things, it's super easy for us to love each other. Sometimes loving each other is super difficult because you're my enemy, you've hurt me, you've wounded me, you abandoned me, you left me, you, you caused these scars in me, and it's very, very difficult for me to love you. You're just a difficult person to, to love. And most of the time, love is confusing. Well, how do I do it? So even if I said I'm willing, well, I have this relationship and here are the nuances of this relationship. How do I express love in this relationship? We have this issue in our family. Our, our, our family has addiction in it. How do I love? I, I want to love, but I don't want to enable, and I'm not sure. And I have this wound. I'm open to forgiving them, but they're not even asking for my forgiveness. Are they allowed just to barge back in? Do I put up boundaries? How do I not enable people? So love can be easy, love can be difficult, and it's mostly confusing. And thankfully, God knows that. So when he gives this command, the Bible never tells us what to do without telling us how to do it. And so the Bible gives this command, Jesus gives this command, love one another, and then what he does is fascinating. It's almost as if he looks at us and says, I get the confusing part, so let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you some instruction. And this instruction, I call it the one another's. There's 59 different directives or commands all throughout the New Testament that teach us what to do when it's confusing to love someone. So Jesus and, and the apostles kind of describe this a little bit. They'll say, for instance, when you encourage each other, that's loving. Oh, okay. When you bear each other's burdens, that's loving. Gotcha. When you pray for each other, that's loving. Got it. When you admonish one another, even when I have to correct you or stand up to you, that's loving. Oh, I understand. And there's 59 of these different commands all throughout Scripture, right? And, 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 and God says, I, I get that it's confusing. You're kind of asking how this is a way that you can do that and, and put this into real time. Let me show you one example of these, just one for right now. This is the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter four. This is an example of a, one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. That's a one another. 
So it's confusing to love. What do I do? Well, you forgive each other. How do you forgive each other? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. So let's look at how Christ forgave me. Christ forgave me unconditionally. Uh, Christ forgives me habitually. He forgives me to infinity beyond because I keep sinning. And so he forgives me like 70 times seven kind of a thing, just on and on and on and on and on. Christ does not attach strings to his forgiveness. His forgiveness is offered. It has to be received, but there's no strings attached to it. So I would start looking at what Christ did. I would start understanding the depth of which Christ forgave me. And then I would do that for another person. And in times of confusion or when it's difficult or when, even when it's easy, right, I would one another that other person. And so we're going to look at these over the next few weeks. And we're not going to look at all 59, although that would have made weekend planning very easy. Uh, so we're not going to do that. But we're going to dig deep into some of them. And then you'll get the point, right? You'll, you'll understand it. So when you read it on your own, you'll kind of be able to get your head around it. But we're going to look at these because these are keys to relationship within the church for sure, and then relationship from outside the church. Jesus would say, if you're a Christ follower, you absolutely do this for each other, no questions asked. And then I would say this, this is what the world expects from a Christ follower. So when the world looks and says, I thought you guys were supposed to be compassionate, they have a point about that. I thought you guys were supposed to forgive each other even when it's difficult, and you're not forgiving at all. Well, they have a point about that. I thought you guys were supposed to like share each other's burden, meet each other's needs. I don't see you doing that at all. Well, they have a point. So it is fair when they look at the church and say, I thought you guys were supposed to love each other. Isn't that your whole deal? And then the church can look back at Jesus and say, Actually, that is the whole deal. It's complicated. It's not always easy. But this new command was given to us that we love each other as we have been loved. Okay? Now, to lay down a foundation for this conversation that we're going to have over the next few weeks, I want to go to something the Apostle Paul said. Because to do this, we first have to define love. Right? Because every culture at every point in history has always had its own definitions of love. And that's not always good or bad. It just kind of is. But when God says love, he has a definition. He, he knows what he means by that and wants to make sure that we know. So he defined it for us. So if you got your Bible, grab them. We're going to go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. If you have a Bible there in the bottom of the chair, if you want to use that, it's page 920. And those Bibles, and then this is all on the app or on the, the live stream if you're watching that way. It's all there on the computer. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Paul's going to lay down a foundation. He's going to give us a list of actions, and then he's going to put down a conclusion. And we're going to look at the foundation and the conclusion and start to get our head around what this love is and how it works. So verse 9, chapter 12, Romans, he says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who, who are in need. Practice hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul starts with the foundation where he says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And then he gives a long list of one another's. And this is one of several lists of one another's that we'll, we'll look at in more depth here in the weeks to come. So he's like, live in harmony with one another, don't be conceited with one another, all these kind of things. He gives this long list and then he gives a conclusion. And he says, in conclusion, overcome evil with good. Do you, Christ follower, he's talking to you, you don't, be, you don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, in that foundation, what Paul's doing is he's laying out a definition of love. And I want to take a deep dive on this, and let's dig at it for a minute, because I think it's going to help us a ton as we move forward. So verse 9, chapter 12, says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. This word love right here is obviously the key word. Now, let me just Bible nerd on you for a minute, okay? Our English Bible was translated out of the Greek language to English so that we can, just, we can read it like we just did. So sometimes when we really want to get like a deep understanding of what something means, we'll go back into the Greek and we'll try to understand kind of that original intent. So this word love here, the Greek has several words that it uses for the word love. And each one of those words means something differently. So there's, the, there's a word for sexual love. There's a word for family love, familial love. There, there's a word for, for compassion. There's all kinds of different Greek words that God uses in the Bible that we would just translate love into the English. The word that's used in this sentence in the Greek that we translate love is the word agape. The word agape. And agape love has a very distinct definition in the original language. The word agape in the original language means this. It's the Greek word for a selfless love. Here's the idea. That when you agape someone, when you love them, you are looking at the person who needs love and you are looking to meet their needs and you're willing to do whatever is necessary to meet their needs. You are selfless in that. So it's not, it's not like a, a romantic love where there's a back and forth. It's not even a friendship love where we get along really well. It's not even a family love where you're just kind of like legally stuck together. Like it's none of that, right? It's an agape love. I'm looking at someone, I'm recognizing their need. I'm not even really thinking about myself, I'm selfless. And I will do whatever's necessary to meet that need. So when Paul says love must be sincere, he's saying agape must be sincere. Jesus then, if he was talking, he would say, I want you to agape each other as I agape you. 
How did he agape me? Well, everything Christ did, he did for me. He didn't have to step out of heaven. He didn't have a sin problem. He wasn't, he never did anything wrong. So he did all that for me. When he was on the earth, he never sinned. So he didn't, he didn't lay down his life because, you know, I guess one of us has to do it. He, he did that all for me. He was the only innocent person on the planet. So when Jesus acted, he acted for me. He looked at our need. He acted selflessly. He did what, what, whatever was necessary to meet our spiritual need. And what was necessary was an innocent one laying down their life for guilty ones. He paid a price he didn't owe for those of us who owe a price we could not pay. He was the substitutionary atonement. That's the big fancy word for it, okay? So he agaped us that way. So Paul says, agape must be sincere. Jesus would look and say, right, you should agape each other the way that I agaped you. You look at your brothers and sisters in Christ's needs, and even beyond that, to the world around us, their needs, and you give and you sacrifice and you lay down your life for them with no expectation of return for you. Okay? So agape, agape must be sincere. Now this word sincere is another fascinating word when you do the same thing and you shove it back into the Greek and get your head around it. The word sincere it, it, that's tied here is the word that it, it kind of rotates around the idea of hypocrisy. So what Paul might see, he might also say it this way, agape must not be hypocritical, is how he would maybe say it in the original language. Agape must not be hypocritical. The word hypocritical is an old Greek word and it comes from theater, theater. So every actor you've ever watched, every like actor who's won a, an Oscar, best actor of the year, or the, the ones that should have, Rock should have got it for the Fast and Furious series, like Vince definitely should have got it, right? So every actor you've ever watched is by definition a hypocrite. They are per, they're putting on a facade and pretending to be someone that they're not. It's their job. So an actor is a hypocrite. They pretend to be someone that they are not really. And in the Greek, that's where that word comes from. So Paul is saying that selfless agape must not be hypocritical. I don't agape you for any other reason except that I wanna love you. Jesus did not put on a facade. So he, did, he didn't come and have like a secret plan, right? He didn't come as a fictitious character. He didn't, he didn't get right to the edge of the cross and then say, all right, if you don't pay me, I'm not dying. There was no other agenda except the agenda of love. So Paul would start to say, love each other as I've loved you, do the one another's, here's, the big, here's a partial list I just gave you, but you do all of that, let's understand that. That all that one anothering is selfless and it is sincere and there's no other agenda attached to it. 
Now what's fascinating is this, as we study this out and kind of dig deeper into it the next few weeks, what you're going to find as we go through the, the second half of the Bible, the New Testament part of it, you find these 59 one another's, and what you're going to find is this, is that woven into this teaching is an ancient mindset. And this happens a lot in the Bible. That's why we talk about the ancient cultures a lot, right? They, they have grids that they think things through, just like we have grids that they think things through. And so one of the grids that they would think things through is this. In the ancient world, when you were one anothering, when you were giving to each other, the idea was this, is that one anothering and loving like this was a two-person exchange. So the way that we might think of it is the way that we would think about playing catch, okay? So for us to play catch, both parties have to participate and each person playing catch does the same thing back to the other person. So if I'm gonna play catch with you, I'm at one point in the game, I'm going to be the giver. I'm going to throw the ball. And when I throw the ball, for us to play the game, you have to be the receiver. You have to catch the ball, okay? So as the giver, when I throw the ball, I have an expectation that you're going to receive the ball, catch the ball. Now what happens is after I throw it and you receive it, we change roles. Now you have to throw the ball and I have to receive it. And the one anotherings kind of play like that. There's sometimes in one anotherings that I am the giver and just as importantly as being the giver, I have to be the receiver or we can't one another. We can't actually play the game. I can't always be the giver. I can't always be the receiver. I have to switch roles, and both of us are playing this game with each other. Now, in the ancient world, when they thought about one anothering, they thought about those two roles a lot. And each person in that exchange had expectations of the other person. So in the ancient world, when you were the giver, when you were the person who was gonna give forgiveness or give compassion or, or give money or whatever you were gonna do, when you were the giver, you had the right, so to say, to have an expectation of the receiver. So you didn't just walk in the room and you know, pass out $100 bills kind of a thing. You had an expectation of the receiver and your expectation was that the receiver had nobility that when you gave to them, they would receive what you gave to them and they would do with it something noble. They would receive it correctly. Uh, today, we might say something like this, uh, I don't wanna give a hand out, I wanna give a hand up, right? So they had, the giver had the expectation, you're not using me, you're not squandering what I'm giving you, you, you actually have a need, I want to give to you, but you catch it, and you use it, and you act with noble character when I've given it to you, okay? Now, you flip the coin then, there's the receiver, and the receiver had the right to have an expectation of the giver, and their expectation was this, I will receive it with nobility, but I have the right to believe that you're giving it with humility, I have the right to believe that you're giving it 
with humility. Today we would say that I want to give you something and there's no strings attached, right? So the receiver gives to somebody that has nobility. The receiver receives from somebody who has humility. There's no strings attached. Here's, here's the thing. If you give a gift with strings attached to it, you haven't given a gift, you've made a purchase. It's a real, real important distinction. When you give a gift with strings attached to it, you haven't given a gift, you've made a purchase, okay? So the receiver had the right, so to say, to trust in the humility of the giver, right? Now, we would look back at Christ. We're gonna love Jesus Christ. He agaped us with sincerity, right? Jesus' gift of salvation is free, there's no strings attached. You don't have to receive it if you don't want to. You can let the ball run by you, but it's free. Jesus doesn't say, if you get your act together, if you quit smoking, drinking, chewing, dating girls who do and cheering for Michigan, if you get your act together, then I will give you salvation. He doesn't say that. While you're still a sinner, as you're an enemy of God in your heart, I have provided this gift for you. You don't have to receive it, but it's been provided. I want to give it. Okay. Then as the receiver, I look at my relationship with Christ. Here at Grace Church, we don't believe that you earn your way to heaven. So we don't believe that, that you got to give enough money and go to church enough and you know, quit using being Captain F-bomb, all that kind of stuff. We don't look and say you got to earn your way to heaven. The reason that we do things for God or we give money to God or time to God is out of gratitude, not out of obligation. So we would trust the humility of our giver as we receive. And then we would give back to God, not to pay a debt, but because we're overwhelmed by the love of God. So Jesus says, love each other that way. You, you freely give, you receive, and then you're playing catch. Then it's gonna be your turn to throw. And the other person's turn to receive. And the one anothering starts to happen there. Paul goes on then, he says something interesting. I, I, wrote, I said this in my notes, the offer of the gift and the reception of the gift is, is to be sincere, right? That's the point he's making there, that both sides of the exchange are sincere. Then he goes on in verse nine, he says this. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. This is one of the only times in the Bible where God's gonna tell his people to hate. He says, I want you to hate, I want you to hate what is evil. In this sentence, what would be evil, the logical object of evil is hypocrisy. So I want, I want it to be sincere, I want it to not be hypocritical, and when love is hypocritical, I want my people to hate it because that's evil. When love is given in a hypocritical way or self-serving way, it's not agape, it's self-serving as something else, and that is evil. Now, this is really strong language that the Apostle Paul is writing on God's behalf because he would look and say, lack of sincerity or hypocrisy is evil and I want you to hate it. Why would he want us to hate evil. Why is that such a big, big deal to God? If we're being honest, 
oftentimes when we love each other or we're doing kindness or doing good to each other, that goodness or that offer or that gift is not sincere, if we're being honest. And when it's not sincere from us to the other person, Paul is saying that's evil and you should hate it when that happens. What would be an example of insincere love? Here's an example of insincere love. I get my phone out. Hey, you guys got your phones on? Everybody got their phone on? Look, I'm going to give something to this homeless people. Make sure you record it. You got your phones out? You got your phones out? I saw a kid at school that needs a new shirt. Everybody, come here. Come, what? You got it? You got it? You got it? Here's your new shirt, buddy. There's nothing sincere about that. That act of goodness is much more for my benefit than the benefit of the one who needed it. Because I'm going to throw it up. It's not like somebody caught me doing good. I'm going to throw it up online. I'm going to check the number of likes that I have and views that I have. I want to be seen doing good. In fact, I'm only doing good so that you can see it. Paul would say that's not sincere. In fact, it's evil. You should hate that. Why? Why would you hate that? Uh, another way that we do it is this, is we'll negotiate relationships. Listen, I will quit being cold to you if you start talking to me the right way. And if you don't change your tone, then I will not change my posture. Right? That's not sincere. Oh, come on. Like, that's just me and Heidi. You all deal with that, right? So, right? That's, that's not sincere. That's a negotiation. That's not an agape. That's a negotiation. That's not an agape. If you get yourself back in school and start studying what I told you to study, then I'll help you with the school bill. Those are strings. That's not a gift. That's a purchase. I didn't say it was a bad purchase. I just said it was a purchase. Okay? Paul would say, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not agape, and that's not sincere. You should hate that. It's evil. Why would he say hate it? And you can flip it to the receiver. You, you have more than you need. You should give to me. It's ridiculous. Nobody needs a house that big. Nobody needs a car that nice. You, you one percenter, you should give. You owe me. Right? Well, wait a minute. There's no, there's no nobility in that. Why do you have all that? Why, you go to the Browns game every time. I haven't been once this year. What, as a receiver now, I'm demanding you have to do this for me. And Paul would say, that's not agape, and that's not sincere, and you should hate that, and it's evil. Why would he be so strong with that? Because, especially for the people of God, if you're not a Christ follower, there's like a, a less accountability for you on this one. If you are a Christ follower, the accountability is to the roof because it's a new command you've been given by Jesus himself. Especially for the people of God, God would say, when you do not agape with sincerity, what you do is you pervert and you distort and you taint the picture of Christ's love. 
When Jesus looks at us and says, love each other as I've loved you. Agape each other as I've agape you. When I, in the name of love, do unloving things that are hypocritical, I have perverted and tainted and distorted the very essence of who God is. And Paul says, that is evil. You should hate that. Because they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. I mean, the, the, the very, very foundational thing that my people will be known for, you're distorting. And when the world looks at the church and holds us accountable to that, they got a point. So wait a minute. You're, not, you're telling me that until I get my act together and live the lifestyle you want me to live and do what you want me to do, you're not even open to me being in your presence and you don't love me? That doesn't sound like something Jesus would do. They got a point. No, wait a minute. You're telling me you're the people of God and you're defined by your love for each other and you haven't talked to that person from your old life group that you've been mad at for 10 years? What's attractive about that? Well, they got a point. So wait a minute, you're, tell, you're telling me that you're the people of God and you got other people of God in other parts of the world that are going hungry and you don't give a nickel? Well, see, they got a point. The world is allowed to expect the people who claim the name of Jesus to act and think like Jesus. And so when they look at us and say, aren't you guys supposed to agape each other sincerely? And when that is twisted and distorted, Paul would look and say, that's even, of all the things to confuse the love that God has for you that you're supposed to reflect to each other, He goes on, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. What is good? My definition of good is this. Good is any action that I do that reflects the heart and intention of Christ. That's good. Any action that I do that reflects the heart and intention of Christ. When I feed a hungry person, that's good. When I confront you about blatant sin in your life, that's good. Uh, when I'm kind to the little lady, that's good. Uh, when I stand up to someone who's a bully and injustice is happening, that's good, okay? So it's any action that reflects the heart and intention of Jesus. So Paul says, I want you to hate what is evil. I want you to cling to what is good. Why would he say cling? Why would he say cling? Because sometimes loving people is easy. Sometimes loving people is hard. And most of the time it's confusing, and so I'm clinging. This is what happens in our relationships in real times. I have a relational tension with someone that I'm commanded to love. I'm willing, I don't really know how to do that, I'm confused. And so the ex shows up, because we're gonna transfer the kids back and forth. There's a ton of tension there, and I'm supposed to love them. I don't know what to do. And this is, this is how this actually plays out. You're not gonna solve that relational problem overnight. 
The wounds are too deep. The issues are too complicated. Their personal issues, your personal issues. There's no way that you're going to solve all of that. It's impossible to tackle it. What you're going to be able to do is cling to good in a moment. I can't fix a relationship, but I can cling to this moment. So the question is not, how do I get my ex to deal with their daddy issues? How do we deal with all of this pain? How do we work through not playing the kids against each other? That's issue you're not going to solve. But the thing that you can face is this. They're being a jerk to me right now. What is my response to them? I can cling to what is good. I have this moment. And this relationship is confusing and it's difficult and there's a history and I have this moment. What do I do in this moment, God? I don't know what to do. And God, in essence, backs up and says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 59 options. Grab a one another, hang on to it for dear life, and apply it. You can pray for them. You can, you can... Speak kindness to harshness. You can bear their burden because they got so many daddy issues. Like, uh, see, there's all kinds of one another. I don't really know what to do, and I'm not going to solve the issue, but I can cling to a moment. And in that moment, I can love them as Christ loves me in my moments. Paul says at the, at the foundation of this game of catch, okay, on the side of the giver and the receiver, there's agape, there's sincerity. Do not confuse that, please. It is the number one statement that Christians have. And when it becomes difficult, cling, hang on. How? Grab a one another and put it in play. I know it's confusing. I'll try to help you this way, right? And as you do that, and you do that habitually and continually, you wind up expressing love in the way that you've been loved. This week, this week there, there has been an example of a godly young man doing a one another that has blown up globally. I want to show you this. If you don't know the story, here's the story. This young man's brother, big brother, was murdered. A cop came off of a 13-hour shift she lived in the same apartment complex as his brother. She lived on the fourth floor. She went into his apartment directly below hers, which was on the third floor. She thought there was an intruder in, our, in, her, in her home, but actually, Botham is his name, he was in his home. He was watching television, eating a bowl of ice cream in his own house. She gave him commands I'm sure that he was completely confused because he's just minding on his own business in his own house. So he didn't comply with her commands. And when he didn't comply, she shot and killed him in his own house. That all went to trial. She was convicted of it. And at the sentencing hearing, there's victim impact statements that are made. And so 
Botham, the big brother, his little brother was giving his victim impact statement. And I want you to watch this, and as you watch it, I want you to see a one another, he's clinging to what is good, and you're gonna see one anothering in action, okay? So watch this. I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just I hope you go to God with all what all the guilt all the thing the bad things you may have done in the past each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do if you truly are sorry I know I can speak for myself I I forgive you and I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. this, this kid. <clears throat> this kid said, I'm speaking for myself. He said it twice. I'm not speaking for my family. I'm not speaking for politics. I'm not speaking, I'm just speaking for myself. I'm going to forgive you as I've been forgiven. 
He didn't wag his finger. He didn't tell everybody else what to do. He didn't even quote a Bible verse. His sincerity, nobody questions his sincerity. He wasn't there to make a point or a protest. He said, my brother, his big brother who was murdered, my brother would want that. His big brother taught this kid something. And all he did, he is blowing up the planet because he did a one another. And nobody wonders if he's a follower of Jesus Christ. Nobody's arguing with his motives and he's not speaking for anybody but himself. And you see Christ. If you're not a Christ follower yet, if you want to know what Jesus is like, Jesus is like that young man walking off of that witness chair, looking at you behind the defendant's table saying, you did it, you're guilty, there is no excuse, and I choose to love and forgive you. You just witnessed Jesus. And if you want to know what Jesus wants from you, there's no strings attached. You know what he wants from you? He wants you to get up from behind the defendant's table and come out and embrace him. Did you see her? She ran to him. She ran to him and she received. She trusted. She didn't run and flinch. She didn't think he was going to punch her when he got close enough. She ran to him as she received what he was offering her. And the reason that this kid is blowing the planet up on the internet is when we look at that, we look and say, that's Christ and that's us. And when the world around us sees a Christ follower, love an enemy, they all say, that's what we need. I wish that would happen. I need that in my life. That's what the planet needs. And nobody's looking at that kid and saying, I wonder if he's running for office. They're looking at that kid and saying, he actually believes it and he actually did what he believes. And all he did was love somebody. That's it. That young man is a, is a hero, an example, the leader. Not because he wanted to be, but because he was not overcome by evil, he overcame evil with good. And all the one another's in the middle. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, as much as it's up to you. Live in harmony with one another. See? Guys, this is the calling that God has on his people. It's the calling God has on his people. And he, he looks and says, that's how they'll know you're my disciples. 
That's how this will make sense to people. Because in our own strength, we don't do stuff like that. In our own agenda, we don't do stuff like that. But with agape, with sincerity, clinging to what is good. Can you imagine that kid? He's hanging on to his faith. Band's going to come out. And Lauren's going to sing this beautiful song about the love of God. And I want you to hear it. I want you to hear the words. And and I want you to to marinate in them. It's a powerful truth. And as she sings it and we do that, I encourage you to pray. I encourage you to pray, you know. I was thinking about this this week. I was getting ready. I thought... I thought this, I thought, if I wasn't a pastor, and if I didn't tell anybody I was a Christian, would anybody know it? Just by my love, by my willingness to sacrifice in their life, would they just assume it? Because that kid's not a pastor, and he didn't tell anybody he was a Christian, we all know that he was. I wonder if there's a relationship especially if it's in the body of Christ, from a small group to an ex, a relationship that healing and forgiveness and help needs to be found in, right? I don't know. I don't, whatever God's got going on in your heart, why don't you take a few still moments here, give the Holy Spirit freedom to encourage or convict or challenge, and then yield to it, right? Embrace the new commandment and, uh, and act accordingly, right? Jesus, help us, me especially. God, so grateful for this young man. Thank you, God, for I'm convicted about my pettiness. So thank you for a brother in Christ who challenged all of us. Thank you for his illustration of your heart. And God, help us then to to be that to somebody else. So Holy Spirit, press deep into our hearts. Press deep into our character. Press deep into our pain. And God, as we download the depth of your love and forgiveness, motivate us, empower us, help us then to be the ones that give it to the next.